1: Hello and welcome to the long form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, my co-hosts. Big show this week. Yeah. yeah. Massive show. Big name. Massive prep. Yeah. This, uh, I think we set an all-time record with this show. I mean, you guys can challenge me with your own research experiences, but... I believe I logged the most preparation hours uh, for this show of any interview ever on Longform. Yeah, Podcast. you had a
0: very like
1: uh, a <laughs> like roller coaster reaction to uh, to when we got this week's guest, Ken Burns. The first uh, moment you were like, "Yes, this is going to be awesome," and then the <laughs> next moment you were like, "I have to
0: watch so much Ken Burns." Did you watch them all? You had did, seen those uh, some oh, already,
1: surely. The, the idea of watching them, like Evan, there's there's <laughs> there's grades within watching them all. You definitely. I definitely don't know all of the films that Ken Burns has made, and I did watch an episode of some of those forgotten uh, pieces of the history, but mostly, no, mostly I uh, backloaded my task with watching his Vietnam series, which I think came out a couple, two or three years ago, and Country Music, which is his new series, um, which I think the first four of them are out now, and there's four more to go, and those are are a couple hours each, so... uh, Basically, I was like feverish and watched like 12 or 14 hours of country music documentary in the 24 hour period right before doing this interview. But tell us that all this preparation paid off, please. Very, very little of it came to bear, but I don't regret anything. Uh, He is a really fascinating person. I mean, he has turned his form into a life's work. He has multiple productions going all the time in order to be able to do things like release. Vietnam two or three years ago in country music. Now he's got a ton of uh, different projects going that are each uh, drawing on a variety of disciplines. Um, so yeah, highly recommend this one. Exciting. If you had uh, a bunch of different projects, all going at once, Aaron. You don't want to like, uh, tell people about them. You want to unify them under a single uh, newsletter framework, <laughs> a newsletter that tells people what you're up to, what projects you got, out now coming out where to get tickets all that kind of stuff you do it with Mailchimp. you might be thinking yeah but like my list is only gonna be a hundred people great it's free up until you hit some threshold of people so there's nothing stopping you from just signing up getting it going now so it can grow as your projects do uh, over the decades get yourself a unified project framework I mean come <laughs> on already every project needs one the UPF <laughs>
0: <laughs> thanks MailChimp now here's Aaron with Ken Burns
1: welcome Ken Burns thank you for having me um I feel like you've probably answered the question why country music quite a few times over the last couple weeks of your life so how how did you become a filmmaker when when did
0: you know this is what you wanted to do it's a pretty long and in some ways tragic and also joyous uh, process for me. My mother had cancer, got it when I was about one and a half, two years old. She died when I was 11, a few months short of my 12th birthday. My father was an anthropologist and was an amateur still photographer. And my first memory is him in the dark room and the magic and alchemy of that. But he had a fairly strict curfew, but forgave it if there was a movie on TV. I'd never seen my dad cry not at my mom's sickness, which was devastating, not at her death or at her funeral, but he cried at a movie a few months after her death when I was 12. And um, I resolved then and there to be a filmmaker because I saw the kind of emotional safe haven that it had provided for him. That meant I was going to be Alfred Hitchcock or John Ford or Howard Hawks. This is the mid-60s. And I ended up going to Hampshire College, where all my teachers were social documentary still photographers, who reminded me quite correctly that there is as much drama in what is and what was as anything the human imagination makes up. So I found myself, by 18 years old, a nonfiction filmmaker, and by 22 when I graduated, interested in history. What did
1: nonfiction filmmaking at Hampshire at this junction of history look like? Like what was out there for someone who wanted to pursue it?
0: It was a pretty rich time, uh, the early uh, 70s, the 60s. had seen a revolution of portability in 16 millimeter sound equipment which permitted the early classics of Salesman and the various Penny Baker things. And Fred Wiseman was working in Cinema Verite. There was some self-referential stuff with Ed Pincus. And there were also a proud tradition of more traditional documentaries and a hugely amazing, to me, tradition of experimental works. Maya Darren comes to mind, Bruce Conner, all Stan Brakhage, so many influences that were going in that were nonfiction, And I chose a relatively conservative one, that is to say something that's written about history, which seems to most people safe. It isn't. I think the future is pretty safe. It's the past that's so um, terrifying and malleable. But um, it was a really ripe time to begin. I I think by the time I got out, and certainly the mid-80s when I'd been practicing or, uh, or trying to practice for 10 years, was really the beginning of a golden age, which has not stopped in nonfiction filmmaking. It's made its share of dreck as um, cable, and then the internet opened up. The demand for content has increased. The inexpensive nature of supposedly documentary, I hate the term nonfiction, you know, opened up and we have what's called reality television, which isn't, nobody proposes in front of millions of people. Nobody eats bugs in front of millions of people. Uh, But that passes for reality television. And we've just been able to move along solely with public broadcasting, which is the only place where my things could get done and um, feel quite happy, you know, in our little parochial area.
1: When we talk about your things, like your name has become synonymous with your filmmaking in this format but you know coming out of college not having like a model like now i think i might know how to make a ken burns
0: film from studying other ken burns films but was there a like i a doubt little, it I, <laughs> and I, and it wouldn't be very good because it wouldn't be you i mean the the thing is that style the, all, yeah. the only thing style is is the authentic application of technique all of us employ techniques my films vary widely, but they do represent the same painter, if you will. So you could look at a room of Cezanne, I'm not comparing myself with Cezanne, and you could recognize from still lifes and landscapes that it's the same painter. But if you get up really close, there's totally different approach to solving the problems of each one. But there is a consistency in the way various techniques are a- applied. And in my case, it's There may be very little first-person voices, there may be a lot of first-person voices, a lot of talking heads, no talking heads, lots of photographs, no photographs, lots of footage, no footage, a whole variety of responses to whatever the subject matter is. So the only real thing is that you have to do your own work and, and do it authentically.
1: For you, when you started off doing that work, what were the biggest challenges in developing that technique and and bringing what was in your head onto something people could actually watch?
0: Well, I don't think what was in my head was very well organized or certain. Certainly, I was anxious. I think the biggest difficulty is how to be true to yourself, how to listen to the real voice, the voice that's questioning, the voice that doubts in a healthy way how to explore, let the subject itself tell you. I mean, I'm still against imposing any kind of will or pre-knowledge on a subject. I'd rather rid myself, first be aware of, and then rid myself of whatever baggage I'm bringing, whatever preconceptions I have, and then try to let the material speak to itself. I mean, traditionally, in the type of filmmaking that I do, there's a set research period followed by a writing period, which produces a script that informs the shooting and the editing. Boom, done. We never stop researching. We never stop writing. So we're corrigible to the end, able to change and tolerate the undertow and the complexity of any given subject where the thing and the opposite of a thing, as Wynton Marsalis once said to me in our jazz series, are true at the same time. And we shoot before we start writing. And so we're not essentially imposing on the material, we're letting the material teach us in all sorts of different ways. The left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. It attenuates the process, but allows us to do these you know, very, very deep dives that can represent the contradictions that are inherent with something. The other uh, way, just, I have a neon sign in my editing room that says it's complicated. Meaning, have the courage to open it up and change it, even if it destabilizes that scene that's working. Even if that scene that's working doesn't ultimately end up in the film. It's better to be true to the complexity of the subject matter than it is to satisfy whatever you know filmmaking glory you're tilting towards. And working in public television, we also get to put out our director's cut every time. We don't have to do a focus or marketing group. We also reach you know millions of people instead of A handful of people and I I I like that equation I like the discipline of it and I like the freedom in it doing those deep
1: dives like when you open up a trove like country music and I think particularly now when there's just been so much more film online and out in archives than there ever was before is it daunting to open these things up or is it as a person who's been in archives all your life
0: satisfying that they're now fuller than they once were? It's a wonderful question, Aaron. I I think it's both of those things. Obviously, there's a tyranny of choice, just as there's a tyranny of no choice. And I've been working on subjects that are pre photographic that offer enormous challenges because there aren't any photographs. And I don't like reenactments. Uh, so what are you going to do? And what we do in Lewis and Clark or the Shakers or Thomas Jefferson or the West is we struggle uh, to figure out equivalencies that permit us to do it and take poetic license with later photographs and, you know, basically devise creative stuff. And at the same time, there are subject matters when you realize you are drowning in a sea of footage. And we, what I've done is I've anchored my life in that original memory of my dad in the dark room. I've anchored it. The DNA of what I do is a still photograph. All filmmaking is, is a still photograph 24 times a second. And the limitations of our human form creates what's called persistence of vision. So we're actually looking at 24 still photographs at 1 48th of a second each, followed by 1 48th of a second of black 24 times. And we can't, we see persistent vision and it moves. So I've just rested in that. You'll see in films like the second world war or Vietnam, where there's a preponderance of footage that will sometimes resort to the most central of our exposition and opening an introduction with still photographs. Um, you know, if you have footage of Babe Ruth running around the bases, you can basically talk about Babe Ruth running around the bases. But if you have a still photograph of him, a beautiful, gorgeous portrait You can talk about him running around the bases. You can talk about his unhappy childhood on the wharves of Baltimore, his challenged relationship with his teammates and the many women in his life. You've really got a tabula rasa that permits a a kind of equivalency, the photographer Paul Strand, where you're not necessarily showing what you're talking about, but you have permitted a space where people can dive into it. The other part of your question is really addressed by the fact that despite all of this stuff, we still remain superficial. We were gonna have all these channels, therefore we'd have all these in-depth news stuff. Nothing's in-depth, nothing's in-depth. We have a million places, 10 million, 15, I don't know, places where you can go and find stuff on the internet and nothing's in-depth. So what I've tried to do is stay wedded to the long form, to be disciplined enough to understand that all meaning accrues in duration, that the work you're proudest of, the work I'm proudest of, the relationships we both care the most about have benefited from our sustained attention. I would rather be the tortoise than the hair in the Aesop's fable. And it takes a lot of discipline not to take off and run, but to stop and say, you know what? It's going to take me eight and a half years to do country music. It's going to take me 10 and a half years to do Vietnam and all these other people getting started and finishing and exhibiting. But that time, that precious time and the duration of the projects we create permit us to have the kind of deep dives that are ultimately satisfying not only for us as filmmakers but for other people as an audience and we belie the conventional wisdom i've been told from the very beginning when the critics said oh civil war is really great no one will watch it oh baseball is wonderful no one will watch it jazz is great but nobody likes african american subjects oh the you know world war II is great but it's too long and you know national parks is great they stopped saying that by the time the Roosevelts, uh, which I'm just skipping to the I was big say, series. did they like any of your ideas? Yeah, but they were, you know, they they liked them and they thought the films were great, but they were certain there wasn't a market for them. Yeah. But they didn't say that about the Roosevelts. They didn't say it about Vietnam or country music. And I'm skipping over the smaller series and the individual one-off uh, things only for brevity, because they knew that we're now in an age where. There's a tsunami of information. It's breaking over us like a tidal wage. People are drowning and they're starved for curation. And so what people do is we call it binging as if it's some guilty pleasure. No, no, no. We are binging because we are making choices to submit to someone's narrative story, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, that will save us from the cacophony of events that are happening.
1: Hey, I'm going to pause things here to give you a quick word from this week's sponsor Vistaprint. It's important to feel professional polished and prepared when it counts. AKA right now you can be plugged in and prepared if You have a business card from Vistaprint. It's the first step to making something crucial happen. Uh, Vistaprint is here to help you own the now with free shipping on any business card in any quantity. You get to choose whatever style, finish, shape, or paper you like. And because you get to pick the fonts and designs, it means it's something unique, Completely your own that you can feel good about. You can also feel good knowing that Vistaprint only uses carefully selected inks and responsibly sourced paper stocks. Your satisfaction is 100% guaranteed or your money back. So I want you to go to Vistaprint and own the now by putting in promo code LONGFORM. Again, this is at Vistaprint.com. You'll get free shipping on all business cards, any style, any quantity, limited time offer. Again, Vistaprint.com, promo code long form. When you support people like Vistaprint, you support this show. Here is that show. Yeah, I mean, the idea of curation is interesting as like your work charts the shift from stealth photography into Vietnam where you're starting to get news motion picture photography and if you keep doing this I would guess that you'll eventually do one where a lot of the footage is coming off of people's cell phones and as more and more stuff gets made as more and more photos get taken more and more people have a video camera it seems like the need for that filter and that curation grows um, because simply the body of
0: common work is too large. Yeah, well, it's a, that's really the nub of it, and I think you hit the nail on the head. Just because everybody's got a camera, both a still and a movie camera in their pocket, doesn't make them a storyteller or a good photographer. And storytelling is super hard. It's really hard over you know, the 16 and a half hours of country music. It's a Russian novel of intertwined and interbraided stories that introduce you to 150 characters. Obviously some primary, some secondary, some tertiary, some bit players who strut and fret their hour across the stage and disappear. But that's what I'm paid to do. I'm about distilling that information. I don't care whether it comes from an iPhone. I don't care if it comes from a 70 millimeter camera. It's the same thing to me. It's a raw material to be used well or poorly. And I hope that it's always the former and not the latter. And that requires a lot of discipline and a lot of realizing that you don't want the technological tail to wag the dog. I was 10 years late in coming to computer editing. And I was 10 years after that coming to video, uh, digitally shooting. I stayed with film and analog editing way beyond because I did not want the new technology to overwhelm. I'd watch friends who would be obsessed with a title sequence and spend all of their energy, creative or otherwise, in the opening five minutes, and the rest was kind of rote. I don't give a damn about what my title sequence... I mean, I, my, for me, a big deal is to put a red line under something. You know, I don't I don't need to have things burst into flame or morph into that. I need to save my energy. I need to pace myself. It's a marathon. I need to have strength at the very end, not just in the very beginning with some big huge sprint. Well, um, why
1: why do you do these like multiple ones at once? Uh <laughs> it was struck me while I was watching the Jimmy Rogers uh section of the country music documentary. There's something in your own work history that echoes some of these people who work themselves to death.
0: Well, you know, Jimmy Rogers, who's the first great superstar in country music and an amazing composer and a great personality, kind of represents the Saturday night to the more staid Carter family Sunday morning, though the Carter families have melodramas coming out their ears that uh, belie that. But he suffers from tuberculosis, and that's what kills him. There are people for whom the creative process and the success that sometimes follows it is a mixed blessing. You know, Hank Williams, who died last night, as we're talking, was one who was an alcoholic and addicted to drugs at the end of his life. He had himself a congenital spine defect that may have done it. But I think being this incredibly sensitive instrument to the pain and suffering of humanity made it also pretty hard. And when you have that celebrity, sometimes for people... Uh, hard to turn it off. It's hard for me. I, I, I admit to being greedy for creation. I, I don't like to go to bed without knowing that I made a film or two films or seven films better. And I'm working on seven films. And you know from other interviews you've done that if any other filmmaker tells you that they're doing seven films, they're lying. But I have seven films in the editing room, in production. We're shooting them in scripting. They're underway. And that is a huge juggling thing. And yet, you know, I'm, I'm 66, I'm busier than I've ever been in my life. And there may be a little bit less the Jimmy Rogers or Hank Williams model than there is the Red Shoes Ballet. Once you put these wonderful magic shoes on, it's hard to stop dancing.
1: So you were working on country music in Vietnam simultaneously. Oh, yeah, and in
0: several yeah. other films. And so, se-
1: several other, probably some that have, still have not come out. That, that's correct. And those are undertakings, I think, eight, ten years I've heard. America has changed a lot from the day you started working on those films to when they come out Taking that the tortoise model like does it matter? What's happening all those years how the audience is changing? I even think in the case of Vietnam, you know 10 more years away Is a long time in in the scale of time
0: Since the Vietnam War ended. Yeah, it's a good point so um, people always talk about history repeating itself. It never, ever has. I like what Ecclesiastes, which is the Old Testament, said, what has been will be again, what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. That suggests that human nature is the same, and, and that's where we have this idea that history repeats itself. It's not. We just see human beings do the same thing to the random chaos of events. But to speak directly to your excellent question, I started work in Vietnam, worked 10 and a half years on it. And when I was promoting it in the summer of 2017, and you can go back and think about where we were in the summer of 2017, we just come off a year of, uh, almost a year of a new presidency and, and the previous hectic and dramatic campaign before that. And I would say to people, what if I told you I'd been working for 10 and a half years about uh mass demonstrations taking place all across the country against the current administration about a white house in disarray obsessed with leaks about a president that was sure the media was lying about him about asymmetrical warfare that confounded the mighty might of the U.S. military about huge big document drops of stolen classified material into the public sphere that destabilize the political conversation and accusations that a political party reached out to a foreign power during the time of a national election to affect that election. You would say that I had just made a film about the last year and a half. But all those things were true about the Vietnam War when I began the series in 2006, and they were true when we locked the picture, editorially stopped working on it in December of uh, 2015, a month before the Iowa caucuses, out of which Donald Trump was not supposed to emerge. So I go back. To something that Mark Twain is supposed to have said, which is history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. I've never finished a project in which I swear to you, I have only been dedicated to telling a good story about that project where I haven't seen the way in which it echoed, reverberated, rhymed with the present. So I am not worried. Now, it is true that had I begun the Vietnam War in 1985, uh, you know, America was in a recession. Japan was ascendant. We were in decline. Uh, if I'd waited 20 years to 1995, we were the sole superpower. Uh, Japan was stagnant. We were ascendant in the middle of the largest, till then, economic expansion, peacetime expansion. In our history, if I'd waited to 30 years, to 2005, it would be in the lee of Iraq would be happening. There would be even Afghanistan was happening. There'd be parallels to that. So starting it then and knowing it would take 10 years meant that I would enter something in which it would be completely unfamiliar territory. And at the same time, that list of six things reverberates. And I could take any one of my films and do that for you. You name it, I will tell you what I told people in my sort of stump speech as I was promoting it, and it sounded like the subject I'd picked, whether it was the Brooklyn Bridge, or the Civil War, or Prohibition, was exactly what was happening in the moment now. And that's the great benefit for me of the discipline of history, not just the discipline of being the tortoise and not the hare, but the discipline of choosing history. Documentaries are typically topical, but then they're skywriting. The first breeze, and they're gone. They've lost that. But you do a history film, today's a school day in the United States. My Civil War series is 29 years old. It is being shown in hundreds of classrooms today, as it was taught yesterday and will be taught tomorrow. And that tells you that the durability of those everlasting themes are, at least to me, more topical than the temporal stuff that most of the more journalistic things. I take nothing away from that. I love my colleagues. I like what they do. I love the urgency, as, as I think Dr. King and Obama said, of the, the fierce urgency of now. But I know of nothing more urgent than the history you don't know. It has its own staying power. When you hear those
1: echoes and those rhymes, and now you've been around long enough to
0: expect them, Do you lean into them? No, no. It's so important that I I make this clear. We are focused on telling a story. Stories have laws. You know, you can read Aristotle's Poetics in high school or college, and that basically tells you everything you need to know. I obey the same laws of storytelling as Steven Spielberg does. The only difference is I can't make stuff up, Mm. right? I've talked to him about it. It's exactly the same thing. It is hard enough to do that. I don't need to put my thumb on the scale and have neon signs going, hey, isn't this so like today? Because I actually won't know. These films take so long. These dives are so deep that it'd be preposterous to focus on that. And so when you look at country music, you'll go, man, they totally cleaned up on the Me Too movement. We were done editorially with this film before the Me Too movement happened. But What I'm trying to say is men have been doing this stuff to women for as long as there have been men and for as long as there have been women. This is not a new phenomenon. It's been happening forever. So all throughout country music are very strong women telling the next generation of women, be careful about this guy. When you go to this conference, watch out for this jockey and this station manager. And that's the way it is. It's just... We're not selecting it with any eye to what's going on now. We're selecting it with what is the operative story as we interpret it, and that's a big enough job. What I am confident enough, and which I have the discipline to ignore, we put the blinders on, is when I do finish the film and lift my head up, I will be able to draw parallels to the present in whatever film I've done.
1: When I reach the end of one of your episodes, you're listed, the writer is listed, and the editor, I think you're the three first people. Yeah, actually, it. producers is, is producer, there in the producer. third spot in the editor. When you're making those operative decisions about what is the true central I don't want to say unbiased, I can't even think of what the right, right word is here, but the the straight ahead story, who's making those decisions and How does that narrative get boiled out of that partnership?
0: Yeah, so it is very much a partnership and a collaborative medium. Uh, It is a particularly uh, extraordinary relationship between me and the writer, in the case of country music, Dayton Duncan, in the case of um, the Vietnam War, Jeffrey Ward, longtime collaborator, with my co-director in that case, Lynn Novick, and the producers, in this case, Dayton again, and Julie Dunphy and me. And then there's a huge collaboration that opens up once we get a certain way with the editing team. So there's a lot of rope that people are given, but at the end of the day, I get to make the final decision. I would be an idiot if I didn't trust the people I've worked with for decades and decades. And when they're passionately committed to something that I want to take out, I'll think twice about taking it out. And I might wait for another pass before I do, or I might be convinced that i'm wrong and they're right or i might say do this and wake up the next day and look at it and go well that was terrible but it's very much important that i am there for the all the most important creative processes now i've got four or five producing teams and some of them there's not a confidence in doing interviews so i do all the interviews but if i'm working with Dayton and duncan i only need to do a third of them because he and Julie are handling the others. If I'm working with Lynn Novick, I may not even do 10% or 20% because she's so accomplished in that way. And I'd rather give my talents as an interview to the one that really needs it. But I never miss a script meeting and I never miss an editing session because that's where our films are made, particularly in the editing room. So we'll take a script, that's, you know, I was looking at the episode that was on last night and remembering all the stuff that I took out. You know, the the blind assembly, that is to say, my voice as the scratch narrator reading the original script that had already been processed, two or three drafts with consultants and my own and our own internal comments, might have been twice as long as the episode. And then I go through and I've got some pretty sharp scissors.
1: When you're at that scratch script level, do you find the working aloud process is very different than on the page?
0: Oh, very much so. Um, I read uh, the first draft of the script in my head out loud, and I make changes right away to a speaking voice. And then I'm also cutting things and seeing places where you could get away on the page with certain redundancies, but you can't get away in film. And then as we refine the script and take advice from consultants who say, you've missed this or this date is wrong or, you know, it was actually Friday morning, not late Thursday night, all good stuff at whatever level of the criticism. And then you start putting it up. I read it out loud and we look at it as a blind assembly. So only the talking heads are there, all cut up, jump cutty. And we might go through two or three blind assemblies over many, many months before we sort of feel like the story's beginning to emerge. Uh, that's working. So let's add picture. And so at every stage, you're just letting the material speak to you as much as you're trying to speak to the material. In terms of that
1: interview footage, I didn't realize that that is, you're basically having multiple people go out and gather interviews that are going to feel like they were all Done in the Well, terms of the people have,
0: have very kindly, and I don't know how much grumbling goes on <laughs> behind my back, but they very kindly have subscribed to a kind of way that we do it that I started. And I'm perfectly happy. I I'm fully believe that things that Lynn Novick has gotten, I may not have gotten, and things that Dayton has gotten, I may not have gotten. It's not that many people on any given show like Vietnam, big show like Vietnam or country. It's three people, and 80, 90% are two people. Uh, Myself and Lynn, myself and Dayton and Julie might do a few interviews and Sarah Botstein might do a few. But on many of them, I'm doing all of the interviews. So there is a kind of consistency that has come from working with these people. I wouldn't be letting them do it if I hadn't worked with them for decades. And in the case of Dayton, in the case of Lynn, in the case of Sarah Botstein, it's decades.
1: I'm curious, do you have sort of a common format or have you ever sat down and discussed how you want to do these interviews with the three of you? Like, what what is a necessary ingredient that someone has to achieve? What
0: Listening you- is the biggest thing. Um, you know, you've got a set of questions that's born of research, but none of that means anything if you don't notice the twitch at question five in which there might be a 5A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, you know, and I've done that. And you got to be prepared to say, okay, my job is not to get through these questions. My job is to listen to them and see where a point of real entry might be. It's okay to just answer a question and further a narrative that has yet to be written, but it's another thing to get gold particularly in the films about war, but even in country music where people break into song and they tell you as much by the way they break down trying to get through that song. Dwight Yoakam tries to sing a a Merle Haggard song and he didn't know at the beginning of singing it for us that he was going to be unable to complete it without just sort of speaking his way through after a 12-second pause. 12 seconds in film is an eternity and he's composing himself and you can see him holding fighting back tears and breaking down and you know you want to be open for all of those moments or the soldier who says something and when you the role runs out their wife or their son says honey you never told us that pop you never talked about that that's a pretty great moment and it often means that you've abandoned your script And followed some instinct about the way they responded to the previous question and feel like you want to go someplace there with it.
1: I was struck when I was watching country music, some of the figures like Merle Haggard really appear across almost all of the episodes. He spans almost the whole run of country music. And when you're doing an interview with someone like that, and you're like, I might want some of them in episode two, definitely episode five and six. You never think about You don't know. Not
0: thinking about it. Nothing, never. You don't know what's an episode at the point we did. Merle, for sure, Dayton did that interview. It's, you're right, he's like Zeus. But what was so interesting is that normally in a project like this, you would presume, as we did, that it would be populated not only with the performers, but with lots of critics and lots of writers and lots of historians and scholars. We did 101 interviews. There's only one scholar. Hmm. The people themselves know it. And in order for Merle to agree to do this, he had to know that we were also interested in Jimmy Rogers, that we were also going to do Bob Wills and the Maddox Brothers and Rose. The latter two, we'd heard of Bob Wills. We didn't know much about the Maddox brothers and Rose. Same with Willie, who's fortunately still with us. Merle passed away after our interview, but Willie said, I want you to talk about Ernest Tubb. And so as they warmed to the fact that they could talk about people whom they had deep admiration for and and realized the way in which those careers had sponsored their own in very intimate as well as general ways, it then made them more susceptible to reveal to us the deepest, most innermost aspects of their own story. So by the time you get to Merle's remarkable story, I guarantee Hollywood will at least get a project going, which will be a biopic of his life. Or Willie's. They're ready to tell you stuff they wouldn't necessarily tell anybody else if we hadn't shown our bona fides by attending to the deep dive that we always do. And all of that helps the early part of our film. And then You know, by the fourth and the fifth episode, you're catching up to Merle Haggard's story. When
1: I think over your body of work, I kind of divide it into war and art. Those are the most memorable to me are the Civil War, the Vietnam, the jazz, the country music. What have you learned about, like, the difference about covering those two things as history? and? They're pretty
0: uh, much the same storytelling laws the wars are hugely revealing because it's pretty obvious they represent the worst of us strangely paradoxically they also represent the best of us and so what you have is heightened human behavior i mean when people are in war their violent death is possible at any moment something you and i we don't think about it it doesn't inform every second but that kind of heightened vivification of existence that happens in war. The finely attuned senses provides us with enormous, powerful art. In a way, in this case, the art of living, the art of dying, which are in many ways the same thing. The other subjects I wouldn't say are art. They're just subjects. You know, I have done jazz. I have done country music. I've have done. Uh, films on Frank Lloyd Wright and Mark Twain. I'm working on Ernest Hemingway, but I've done the National Parks and I've done the Dust Bowl and Prohibition and the Brooklyn Bridge, which is a work of art, and the Statue of Liberty, which is kind of a work of art. But these are ideas and stories and all of them are anchored by exactly that. And in many ways to be honest I've made the same film over and over again and it's just asking this deceptively simple question who are we you don't answer it of course how can you but you do hopefully deepen the sounding the asking of that question with each successive project but you don't put your pants on any differently if the day is rainy or if the day is snowy or if the day is sunny making the films the same way you use the tools you have you got no still photographs okay let's emphasize live cinematography You don't need live cinematography. you got way too many photographs and footage. Well, then that's what you're going to do. You're way back in time, and there's no witnesses, and you've got a few historians, but the better thing is to do diaries and journals and love letters to complement the third-person narration with those first-person voices. You're relatively modern subject, meaning people are still alive like World War II or Vietnam or country music. Then you do a lot more interviews than you would normally have. So everything is a kind of calibration of the various devices that we have not just visual but oral at our disposal and that's what i mean by you know there's no there may be a Ken Burns style but all that is again is i hope the authentic application of technique meaning it's true to me it's true to me it's not style for the sake of style i'm not trying to show off and people say well why don't you try something like this i go maybe but right now i'm not being told inside by me to do that
1: do you feel an urgency on these subjects like country music and like vietnam where a lot of the living people who experienced it won't be available in 20 years
0: Well, I think it's really true in country, and it's borne out by the fact that of the 101 interviews we did, 20 have died, including Merle and many other people central to it. I was looking last night, and I was thinking, man, we got Fred Foster, one of the great record producers, before he passed away. Um, There was Merle commenting. um, There was Ralph Stanley. uh, He's gone Uh, own bradley's brother harold a great session musician is gone cowboy Jack clement also a producer is gone many people 20 and and that's hard and so yeah when we begin shooting we work our way down it sounds sort of cold down the actuarial charts the older people get interviewed first little jimmy dickens and and uh harold bradley and uh ralph stanley and none of them are with us
1: what is it like as you start to butt up against the present era as you're, you know, reaching the '70s, the '80s, uh, your own lifetime? I guess would be one way to think about that, or your own working life.
0: Yeah, every time things time I, that came
1: out after the Civil War document?
0: Well, every every time I deal with a subject, something I think I know about, like baseball yeah. or Vietnam, it's a daily humiliation for uh, however many years it takes to do that. Um, what we are as historians, so we try to stop about 25, 30 years out from the present moment. That's the province of journalism and, and near history. And you can't decide who is the equal of Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, and John Coltrane. And even those people who criticized us for not making judgments in the present had to admit that it's going to take another 30 years to know what that is. And so too with country, we stop for all intents and purposes, in the mid to late 90s with the height of Garth Brooks' popularity and the death of Bill Monroe, the father of Bluegrass, and then in a the last chapter, follow the last very productive, very creative years of Johnny Cash, who marries into the Carter family who begin our film. So when he dies in 2003, but we're not gonna fight the Dixie Ticks or Toby Keith or decide who's better, Kenny Chesney or Blake Shelton or whether Taylor Swift really is country or not country. I mean this stuff has been going on in the previous eight episodes and history doesn't repeat itself but it rhymes there's rhymes of all the contemporary stuff in the all the episodes i mean the number one example is that Everybody wants us to comment on Little Nas X and Old Town Road, and every episode details the African-American contribution to uh, country music. So it's unknown, and country music doesn't spend a lot of time advertising it, but it's true, and it's there, and it's in every episode of ours. So for us, Little Nas X, a black gay rapper, uh, having the number one country song of all time, is for us a mic drop. We've been telling you this since episode one, the banjos from Africa
1: when you're asking people to remember events when they were 20 and they're 80 now um what kind of interview techniques do you feel like have really like unlocked the greatest memories and the things that were the hardest to extract from people
0: you know when you're doing something like country music it's less critical uh because the emotional stuff the stuff that hurts them Are often the way in which a song reminded them of their own struggles or it's the sadness at the death of somebody they admired. When your subject is war it's a lot more difficult because human beings aren't supposed to see what people see in war. It's not fun to have your best friend's brains splattered all over your jacket. It is completely understandable if you come back and you, for safety, lock that away into the tightest compartment and you don't want to open it up. And we feel so grateful to those who are willing to open it up. We also know that the people who are unable to hide it away have a struggle with what was called shell shock in World War One and combat fatigue in World War II, and the soldier's heart in the Civil War, and divine madness back during the Greeks, the same thing. People went postal and killed each other in the marketplace, or themselves, or their wives, or drank themselves to death, and what we now call PTSD. Um, you know, the best review I've ever had in my life was, we heard about a soldier who'd been, Vietnam vet, who'd been in and out of VA hospitals for all 50 years, since the war, and had watched last winter the Vietnam War series five times. That's 18 hours time, five. And he told somebody to tell me that he said, I think I'm okay now. I mean, I don't know of a better review I could have And I think I'm okay now. Makes me want to cry right now, because it just means that somehow the way we presented it gave him the kind of safe harbor my father felt. Uh, out of a life that had dealt him a pretty rough hand and had illness and death in it, his own psychological issues. And if a movie in this case, odd man out by Sir Carol Reed starring James Mason about the Irish troubles could give him the opportunity to cry. And that's great.
1: Is there anything you still want to do that you feel like you haven't been able to? Is there a story that's frustrated you that you think I'll, I'll like circle back
0: on my last swing or. Well, I've been very lucky. I haven't had to abandon a project, but I've been itching for three decades to do something on Martin Luther King, and we're actually now in the process of collecting dozens and dozens of interviews of people who knew him so that when we are able to make that film that we haven't lost, the Harry Belafantes and the Andrew Youngs and the John Lewises, and, and to some extent, more importantly, the woman who drove King in Montgomery or the man who uh, was a teenage kind of gopher and intern during the Albany uh, movement in Georgia in the early 1960s, late 50s. Um, But I'm 66 years old. I'm a grandpa, many times over. I have a kind of greater urgency. I know that if I were given a 1,000 years to live, which I will not be given, I would never run out of topics in American history. And so that greed... I was talking about is there I just want to do more it's hard to say no I just I just want to say yes to every idea that comes in that isn't an idea in the head but something that hits you in the heart or the gut and the way country music did and said you got to do it and here I am eight and a half years later going whoa what was that did somebody get the number of that truck
1: thank you so much for this interview thank you that was the long form podcast uh thanks to ken burns and everyone from his team that helped make that possible thanks to my co-host max linsky and evan ratliff thank you to our editor janelle peiffer thank you to our new intern marina clementi thank you to the amazing people at mailchimp and pit writers who help make this show possible also sponsors like vista print they are all dear to our heart and we thank them if you'd like to get in touch podcast at longform.org we love to get email we love to hear from you thank you for listening and we'll see you next week
0: why do you run why does anyone i always thought that runners loved running and that's not the case most runners hate running (laughs) but they choose to do it